0: So our lesson today comes from Genesis chapter 3 verses 20 to 24 and it's titled Paradise Lost from Punishment to Providence. And what we'll see today is that, yes, God must judge and condemn sin. And yet he offers salvation from sin's ultimate consequences. Martin Luther said, the sin underneath all our sins is the lie of the serpent that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ and that we must take matters into our own hands, end quote. And isn't that exactly what Adam and Eve did as soon as they sinned? They tried to take matters into their own hands. Genesis 3 gives us a full picture of God. It gives us a full, a complete picture of God. We've seen his omniscience, his his all-knowingness. We've seen his justice, the fact that he takes sin very seriously. We've seen his holiness, which is tied to his justice. We've seen his all-powerfulness. We've not only seen, uh, we've, we've also seen his mercy. He didn't strike Adam and Eve dead on the spot as soon as they sinned, even though that's what they deserved. And he promised to send an offspring who would crush the head of the serpent. You understand the difference between mercy and grace. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting something that you don't deserve. So they're, they're very similar, but they are different. So we've seen his mercy. He gave Adam and Eve the just punishment for their sin. And yet, elements of his mercy and his grace could be found sprinkled into their judgments. And yet this is still not a complete view of God because while we've seen his mercy, he hasn't given them what they deserved, death, physical death. We have yet to see his incredible grace toward the sinner who places faith in his promises. Adam believed God's promise. God's promise to send this offspring. And that's evidenced by the fact that he named his wife Living. It's very important that we see this because we must understand that faith is what opens the door to forgiveness and repentance opens the door to restoration. Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith it is impossible to please God. It is impossible to please God. It's not just really difficult to please God without faith. It's not pretty unlikely but, but doable if you do the right things. No, it is impossible. In fact, you've got a better chance of individually counting every individual grain of sand on the earth in less than an hour than you do of pleasing God without faith. Grace grace does not nullify the need for obedience unto God. Yes, there is more grace in God than we could ever possibly use, but it doesn't nullify the need for obedience unto God. God rewards faith with forgiveness. God rewards our remorse and our repentance with restoration. God rewards our penitence with provision. And while God must judge and condemn sin because He is a righteous and a holy God, He offers salvation from sin's ultimate consequences. And that's exactly what we see as we continue. Look at verse 21 with me. Genesis chapter 3, verse 21 says, And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Up until this point, Adam and Eve had attempted to cover their nakedness with fig leaves, if you remember, which is just kind of a pathetic attempt to cover uh, their sense of shame. This is a picture of man's total inability to cover himself. That's what the fig leaves represent. Man's total inability to provide a covering for himself. And the truth is that while the sacrifice of an animal can provide a physical cover for Adam, only God can provide a cover for his sin. And the idea here is that we need to be covered with something that's better than the very best that you and I can do. We need to be covered with something better, something deeper. God takes the sovereign initiative here of providing Adam and Eve with garments, with a covering. Like Adam, friends, our sin and our shame cannot be covered by our own best efforts. God is providing physical protection for them as a picture of a spiritual protection physical covering is a picture of spiritual covering for adam adam and eve it's a, it's foreshadowing it's an illustration of the need for god to provide a covering for our sin that is sufficient it's a glimpse of our need for sacrifice on our behalf he doesn't slay adam he slays an animal and of course he would provide ultimately the perfect sacrifice on calvary Christ and Christ alone was the ultimate and perfect sacrifice for our covering and the righteousness of Christ would be the perfect all-sufficient covering that God would provide for his people the question we have to ask ourselves is this what will we stand covered in before God What will we stand covered in before God? What covers your guilt and your shame before God? Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10 says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. That's that's Isaiah rejoicing over the fact that God has given him a sufficient covering. It's a song of deep and joyful praise and rejoicing. And for those who have placed saving faith in Christ, this is our song too. This is our song too. God provided the righteousness that was necessary to cover our sin and our shame so that we can stand before Him in glory, faultless, dressed in Christ's righteousness. This is something that only God could do. Hallelujah! What, what a Savior! But God is not done. God isn't done blessing And protecting Adam and his wife. We continue. Verses 22 and 23. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And the sentence trails on. He just stops mid-sentence. Therefore, The Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Mid-sentence. He just stops and goes and does what needs to be done. We start out in these verses seeing another conversation taking place between the members of the Trinity. He's speaking in plural tense. We. He's saying we. And he isn't talking to angels. He isn't talking to just nobody. No, this is what you would call an inter-Trinitarian dialogue, similar to the one that we saw back in chapter 1 when God said, let us make man in our image. The Lord God says, the man has become like one of us. Trinitarian language. This is a very difficult saying to understand, though, because we're not sure exactly what this even means. Man has become like one of us. Is, is God joking? Is he being serious? You know, we don't know. It's possible that God is, is using satire and humor here to, to mock Satan's empty promises. Oh, look at this. Man's become like one of us. Like, ha ha, he believed that empty promise. Maybe. But it's also possible that God is being serious here. And that in a sense, Adam has become more like God in a sense because he's witnessed evil, just as God has witnessed evil. And thereby, he gained a fuller understanding of the wickedness and the consequences of sin. So if that's the case, then Adam knew evil in a sense, in the same sense that a cancer patient might know cancer but we still recognize that he isn't like God who would not be like the cancer patient who knows cancer. He'd be like the doctor who treats and cures cancer. Whatever God means when he says that Adam has become like one of us, it doesn't mean that Adam has become equal to God. Given the fact that Adam has expressed faith in God's promises and that God has covered him physically and spiritually, what is God doing here by driving them out of the garden? Is he, is he judging Adam? Is he condemning Adam? No. No, this isn't an act of judgment against Adam and Eve. He's not condemning them. He's not acting against their own personal best interests. What we see here is an act of providential protection. You see, while Adam is covered by the covering that was provided by the Lord, and therefore he's walking in spiritual fellowship with God again. He's still no longer walking in physical fellowship as he was in the garden with God. But God has ordained that Adam's days would be numbered, that he wouldn't live in his flesh forever, that he would return to dust, that he would would die, and that the blessing in that, what we saw last week, is that the blessing in that is that the full sense of fellowship with God will be restored. It'll be restored in glory. But to get there, Adam must die in a physical sense. What would prevent Adam from dying physically? Eating of the tree of life. If Adam is not prevented from making his way to the tree of life and eating freely from it, the day would come when he would be tempted to do so. And temptation would get the best of him, and he would eat from the tree of life, and as a result, he would live forever, and he would never, ever, ever have his fellowship with God fully restored or consummated. He would always be separated from God in a physical sense. If God does not prevent Adam from reaching the tree of life, Adam would never fully be freed from bondage to sin. He would be a sinner forever and ever and ever. And he would never be freed from it. And so God sends them out of the Garden of Eden. The next verse is going to give us a more emphatic word, a more emphatic uh, description. It will tell us that God drove them out of the garden. And no, that doesn't mean that God said, you know, let me pack up the car. Let's go for a drive, kids. No, he's driving them out in the sense that he is casting them out. He's expelling them out. You get the picture of him chasing them out of the garden not out of condemnation, out of love, out of grace, for the sake of restoring fellowship one day with them. So they are sent out of the garden to work the ground from which Adam was taken. This is his new responsibility outside of the garden. And and we shouldn't miss the contrast that we see between what we see here and what we saw back in the garden in chapter 2, verse 15, where he was told to work and keep The garden. Now he's simply being told to work the ground. The keeping part is missing here. It's omitted here, and that should be seen as kind of significant. So we start asking ourselves some questions like, what does it even mean to keep? Why why is that left out? Why was it in the garden? But why can't he keep the ground outside of the garden? What's the significance of keeping? Well, to keep means to have charge of. It means to, to have charge of or to have dominion over or to preserve. And so the indication is that Adam is no longer in a position where he has dominion over the earth, at least not in the sense that he did in the garden. And this is not punishment. This is this is grace. This is aimed at the full restoration of, of fellowship with God one day. You see, the way to the tree of everlasting life in the garden was to open your hand and eat from it. After the fall, the way to the tree of everlasting life is through faith in Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, verse 4 says of Christ, in Him was life. Life is in Christ. Christ Jesus. While in the wilderness, at one point, when the Israelites are wandering through the wilderness, the camp of the Israelites becomes infested with these venomous serpents. Hmm, that should point us back to something, right? It's significant. God's remedy is His solution for this problem, for the infestation of all these serpents who are going to kill all the Israelites if they don't do something about it, if God doesn't do something about it, his solution was to have Moses hold up a serpent that was made of bronze with the promise that anyone who would look at it, anyone who would look up at Moses holding this bronze serpent would live, even though they were bitten by venomous serpents. The venom of the serpents would not kill them if they would look up at Moses holding this bronze serpent. And the people had to be thinking to themselves, I mean, think about this for a second. What what was going on in their minds? They had to be thinking, what are you, crazy? I mean, th- this is not a scientific age, but they get the principle of causality, I'm sure, that you know if, if you do this, it makes sense that this would happen. And so they have to be thinking, this is a stupid idea, Moses. How, how, is, how is looking at your bronze serpent going to do anything to the serpent's venom? How's that going to stop anyone from dying, right? Uh, at least that's what I think I'd be thinking in my flesh. But this was a foreshadowing of the way that Christ would become sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He, the Father, made Him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ is the antidote to the serpent's venom. The idea of looking up to a a bronze serpent being lifted up was a foreshadowing of the exclusivity of Christ that, that just as there was no other cure available for the Israelites, for the venom, so too there is no other cure, no other solution for sin. Maybe most importantly, it's a picture of the necessity of both faith and obedience with the understanding that all legitimate faith is obedient faith. If you believe that looking up at this bronze serpent is going to prevent the venom from killing you, you have to actually do it. You don't just believe it. You have to do it. You have to look. And Jesus himself would make this connection between himself and the bronze serpent. He said in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is the tree of life. Jesus is the tree of life. He would say, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. That's from John chapter 5, verse 24. He would say in the next chapter, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And the people who were there, when they heard that, They thought, well, how do we do that? And they ask, how do we do that? And Jesus responds by saying, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Believe, believe, believe. That's the way to life. That's how you come to the tree of life. You don't open your hand and eat physically. God must open the eyes of your heart, (coughs) drawing you to his only... Son, Jesus Christ, and you must believe. While God must judge and condemn sin, friends, he offers salvation from sin's ultimate consequences. So God drives them out of Eden, out of the Garden of Eden, out of paradise for their own good, to keep them from eating of the tree of life and therefore living as sinners forever. He does it in order that ultimate fellowship between God and man might be restored. And so finally, the chapter ends with God ensuring that nobody would ever come to the tree of life on their own volition, on their own means. Genesis chapter 3, verse 24 says this. He drove out the man And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Cherubim are angels that are always associated with two things. They are associated with the presence of God and the glory of God the presence of God, and the glory of God. If they are present, it's an indication that God is present, and they are probably singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is the final reference in the entire Bible to the Garden of Eden. And people try to speculate about what happened to it. Did God preserve it? Did God destroy it? Did He hide it? We don't know. I do have a theory. I have a theory that it's buried under Calvary in the same location where the cross would one day be lifted up with Christ on it, nailed to it, lifted up for all to see. Maybe that's where it is. Maybe it's under that location, but who knows? Maybe it's buried under the Sahara Desert. Maybe it's at the bottom of the ocean. What we know for sure is that the earth changed drastically in the flood. And any trace of it was probably wiped out. But we don't need to spend a whole lot of time speculating about this because if we needed to know where it was, God would tell us and God doesn't tell us where it is, where it's gone, what he did with it. What we do need to know is that the way to God is through faith in Christ. The way to God is through faith in Christ Jesus. What we do need to know is that while paradise is lost, while Eden is gone, a better paradise awaits the people of God in the future. Listen to what John tells us about the end of the age in Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 to 3. He says this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life When I read this, my thought is that's better than the picture we have of the garden in Eden. This is better. This is the new heavens and and the new earth for Adam and Eve and for us as well. there, There is no going back to the garden of Eden. But by the grace of God alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, who is the second and the last and the greater Adam There is a future reality of a sinless existence and uninhibited, everlasting fellowship with God and worship of God in a place where sin will never, ever, ever enter in again. Without faith in Christ, this world is the closest that you can come to heaven. Without faith in Christ, you are lost and you stand before God in proverbial fig leaves. But for those who trust in the promise of God, that all who look to the cross and call upon the name of the Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit will be saved. If you believe in that promise, if you trust in that promise, then God has given you an adequate covering for your soul. Not just for your body, for your soul. And that is the righteousness of His own Son. While God must judge and condemn sin, He offers salvation from sin's ultimate consequences. Repent and believe. And He's given us a promise to live by. The day is coming when we will see something more amazing, more beautiful, more perfect perfect if we can even imagine that than the garden of eden we will see the very face of god and we will live and we will worship forever in his presence the truth is friends god never intended for eden to be our eternal home God knew what was coming. He knew what was going to happen. He's an all powerful, all knowing God. He doesn't learn. He knew what was coming. It was never intended that Eden would be our eternal home. So the truth is we don't need Eden. We need Christ Jesus. We need Christ to be our covering, to be our Lord, to be our Savior to be our righteousness before God. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess to you that we are in bondage to sin and that it is a constant struggle for us to keep our eyes on Calvary, to keep our eyes on the cross. And so in light of that truth, Lord, in light of our struggle against sin and shame, we thank you that you have provided the perfect and adequate covering for us to stand before you dressed in the righteousness of Christ who became sin for us so that we could stand before you in glory. I pray, Lord, that we would trust more fully in this promise, that we would not look to our own efforts for a justification before you, but that we would look to your Son, understanding that that real faith is obedient faith, that real faith works, and that the fact that we trust in you, the fact that we trust in your promises will be made evident in our lives will be made evident in the choices that we make. So Lord, guide us. Guide us in the choices that we make. Give us assurance of salvation that there would be no relational wedge between you and us. That we would come freely to you, boldly to you before the throne, knowing that you accept us, not because of our good works, but because of the goodness of Christ. We thank you for that. Lord, we pray that you would teach us to live in obedience to you in order that you would be glorified in our lives, in order that Christ would be lifted up and glorified in our lives. We pray in his name.